So we're going to begin a series from the book of 1 Corinthians. But I think if you've been with us very long, we, you, you get the idea that we want everybody to read the Bible. We want you to learn how to read the Bible. We want you to understand that the Bible is God's Word given to us. It's not for a select group of holy theologians who have to tell you everything about it. God has given us His Word, and it's a unique privilege, but much like any discipline, you need some guidance in the beginning on how to do that. And so one of the things that you'll always hear us talk about is reading straight through a book of the Bible. The Bible tells us that God's Word was inspired. Holy men of God were moved by God. And so the, the, the things that are in the Bible are not just men's opinions. These are men moved by God. But the means by which they wrote, God didn't put them to sleep and just dictate to them. So, so we have historical stories like the book of Genesis, and then we have poetry like the Psalms. We have gospels, and then we have what we call epistles or letters. And so as you move into the New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament, and every Christian, this isn't for elite people that go to Bible college. You should be able to think your way through and understand how the Bible works. So in the New Testament, we have the first five books are what we would call narrative literature. They're all like historical narratives with theological concerns. God led Matthew and Mark and Luke to write. So, and then Luke also wrote Acts, and, and we have John. But from then on, beginning with the book of Romans, the rest of the New Testament are letters to churches and individuals. And so, for example, the next 13 letters, beginning with the book of Romans, are Paul's letters. We call them the Pauline epistles. And there's 13 of them. We know that he wrote other ones because he mentions them. But the ones that God determined that we need, he preserved for us. And they were copied and transmitted, and the church came to recognize that these are his words. And so I really want to encourage you as you're growing as a Christian to get a study Bible. We, we sell them in the bookstore at cost. We're not trying to make money. But a study Bible will help you when you begin a book of the Bible much like a table of contents or a cover on a book. You don't just go in a bookstore and pick up a, a white book with no table of contents, no background. You wouldn't even know, is this fiction? Is it a math book? So as you read a study Bible, you'll learn to learn the background of a letter. Who's it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? And then as you read it, don't read it like a Ouija board where you just go, God, please speak to me right? But rather, you just read through it, and the Spirit of God will speak to you and teach you, and you'll see that it's completely relevant to our life today. So, the reason that we chose 1 Corinthians was because we just did this mini-series on Haggai, and in Haggai, we saw God's people revived with great purpose to do God's work, and at that time, God's work was to build the temple. Ironically, as we come over to the New Testament, we have the same job. It's just a different temple. The temple in our age is, is the church. The Bible calls the, the people of God the temple of God, and it's our job to build it. And, and ironically, when they were building the temple in Haggai's day, it had already been built before. It was just beat down and broken and destroyed. So they weren't building it for the first time. They were rebuilding it. And in the same way, we're calling this series Rebuilding a Healthy Church. Because as we read through Corinthians, Paul had laid the foundation and started, 
But this church, the wheels came off the bus. There were so many problems with this church that, I, that I've coined the term, this church needed an extreme makeover church edition. But it's so relevant for us today because it has so many of the same issues concerning sex and money and values and conscience matters and divisiveness in the church that it's super relevant for us today. So before we begin to go through the book of Corinthians, we're going to pray together because that's how God speaks to us. Be praying as you read your Bible. God wants you to see something from his word. Even if you've read it before, something will stand out to you. Somebody said to me this morning, wow, what you said last week, God really spoke to me. And I said, no, actually, your husband called me and asked me to talk about that. And I said, so oftentimes people say, oh, he really spoke to me. I don't speak to you. God speaks through his word. So let's pray that he'll do that. Lord, thank you that your word is alive. And so I pray that as we study this book of the Bible, that you will help us to understand what it is you want us to learn here in the 21st century at Riverstone Church. Speak to us. May we see Jesus. And may we grow as we apply the word to our lives. We trust in you that it's not by might or power, but by your spirit that you feed and, and develop and correct and train your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, a little bit about the background. Paul came into Corinth around 50 or so AD, and Corinth was a really interesting city. So, Corinth was, was famous back in the times of like Plato, but then it kind of fell apart, and it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in like the 40s BC. But much like, you remember when the Brits sent a lot of prisoners to Australia? In the same way, what, what the Romans did is, at that time, it was possible for a slave to purchase their freedom. So if a slave purchased their freedom, for some reason, it seemed like Corinth was a good place to send them. So when they sent all of these freed slaves to Corinth, nobody had money. There was no aristocracy. It wasn't like this long history of family money and inheriting lands. But Corinth, when it opened up, became a very, very strategic place to make money because between Rome and the Eastern world, they had to ship all of their products in a, in a, in a location that was dangerous and it took a long time. By, by establishing Corinth, they could cut through this little strip, kind of like, like what we would do with the Panama Canal. Think about how that changed commerce when you can suddenly cut through from the Atlantic and Pacific. So they were able to move the products across this little isthmus in in, in Corinth and get them back on ships quickly. And so this became a place to make money quickly. And as you know, money attracts people. And money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, but all kinds of evil. The Bible says, by longing for money, many people wander from the faith. They pierce themselves with many a pang. And so it didn't take long for Corinth to be, be filled with a lot of vice and greed. And so, as, as these people moved into Corinth and it began to flourish, as you know, the Greeks had all kinds of religious 
ideas and, and gods that they worshiped. And so there was at least 26 temples in Corinth. So we know that part of New Testament Greek culture was to go to, to temples and actually sleep with a prostitute as part of their worship. In addition to that, because there's money, there's lots of swindlers. There's lots of people cheating, moving and shaking, trying to make money. Interestingly as well, where there was money in the first century, people would try to make money by being slick, what we would call a charlatan, you know, like, a, like whether it would be a medicine man or a, or, a, or a snake oil, you know, buy some of this product and you'll grow hair, right? And so in, in the same way, one of the ways that people made money is people at that time valued really good speakers. So it didn't take long before the people in Corinth realized, hey, this Christian stuff, if I, if I can slip in there and start speaking in there, I can make money. I mean, I watched a documentary once about a famous TV evangelist who, who was a phony, and his friend in college said to him, you know, if we just get a tent and travel around and preach about Jesus, we can make a lot of money. So Paul comes into this town that's full of vice. Um, one commentary said it was a combination of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. In fact, it was so bad that at one point, if you were really what we might say, man, you're a real, like, low life. You are a godless pagan. They would call you a Corinthian. Like, you're so evil, you're a Corinthian. So Paul comes into this city, and he begins to teach the gospel. And people start getting saved. And there were a few wealthy people, but most of them were not only poor, but look what Paul says about them in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. So it wasn't like most of you had your PhD. There weren't many mighty, you know, powerful, authoritative rulers. There were not many molten, noble but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the base things of the world. And you're like, ah, oh, I feel bad. They, they were just simple, humble folk just, just trying to get by, you know, just trying to make a living like Jed Clampett. Oh, I hope they'll, they'll strike gold. But go over to chapter 6, and we learn a little bit more about kind of the, the composite membership. What, what were these people like? Paul says in, in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Now pay attention to this list. He says fornicators, that's people who are repeatedly having sex even though they're not married. Idolaters adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, and here they are, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And you're like, oh, gosh, it sounds like he's talking about a bunch of people in prison. And look what he says to the Corinthians. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. 
So, the church got off to a good start from a bunch of pretty godless people who the Lord converted. And Paul was so pleased with their progress when he first left. But the church went downhill quickly. So I want you to turn back to the book of Acts for a moment. One of the things I, don't, I want to encourage you to do is when you're reading one of Paul's letters, if possible, if that church was, was mentioned in the book of Acts, go back and read about it. I mean, how do churches start? Do they just drop out of heaven? Like many of you probably have no idea how this church started. How, how it, it spun from a group of people over in, in New Jersey, in the Trenton area, who were just meeting in a home for a while and then, you know, upgraded to come across the river. Just kidding, just kidding. Moved over here, met, met in a, a, a Catholic monastery for a time, um, the Grey Nun Academy, kind of a school, and then eventually was able to buy this land. It's, it's interesting just finding out how churches started. Well, in Acts 18, we're going to learn how the church at Corinth started. And then we're going to talk today just about its, its initial inception and why Paul had to write to them. But I hope that you'll go home then and go, I want to start reading Corinthians. All right? So look in Acts 18. It says, after these things, Paul, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And again, if, 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 those of you who are interested, you can, get a, you can get a map. You can just type it in. What, what did ancient Corinth look like? You can, you can find where it is and, and, and kind of put yourself in there. So he went to Corinth. And it says, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, the historical background of that was the Jewish people in Rome were so mad at their Jewish friends who were converting to Christianity that they began to persecute them severely. So there's an extra biblical document that says that Claudius expelled them because of quarrels over Crestus, right? So there was, every time Claudius turned around, he goes, there's another riot. There's, th these Jews are killing their own and beating and, and, and fighting with these, their, their own people. And Claudius goes, that's it. All Jews, get out of Rome. And he, and he drives the entire Jewish population out of Rome for five years, which when you read the book of Romans... You understand why Paul was so concerned about getting the Jews and Gentiles to play together because now the Jews had come back and it wasn't that simple for them to assimilate together. So Paul finds a fellow tent maker, verse 3. It says he was of the same trade. Now, as I've told you, some suggest Paul was a, a baker because he went to Philippi, but I think it's more accurate to say that he was a tent maker because the Bible sells that. They were working for trade. They were tent makers. So on Saturdays, Paul would go to the local synagogue. And he would come in as a rabbi. And in the local synagogues back then, visiting rabbis would be given an opportunity to speak. So Paul would come in. He would sit down, wait his turn. And it says he would reason in the synagogue every Sabbath and try to persuade Jews and Greeks, those Greeks who were visiting the synagogue. Now, Paul could only do it on Saturdays because he had to work. But when he was able to be supported, look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. So now he could every day lead Bible studies. 
Every day he could go to homes and talk to them about Jesus. And he would testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But he would do it this way. He would say, let's look in the Old Testament. Doesn't the Old Testament promise a Messiah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jews are like, yeah. What does it say about him? He would, he would be a descendant of Abraham. Yeah, yeah. He would, he would be a descendant of David. Yeah, yeah. But over here, Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin, and you'd call him Emmanuel, God. And then Isaiah said, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and yet he's a son born to us. And look over here, Isaiah says that, that he's going to suffer. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. And look how, and look how David said he's, he's going to rise from the dead. He won't leave, Psalm 16, he won't leave his Messiah in the grave. And suddenly Paul would say, it's Jesus. And so that's what I do with Jewish people. I go, if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, why not? And for the most part, they go, I don't know. Well, I just know he's not. I said, well, how are we going to know who he is? We, so, so one of the things I tell people is if you can just get people to read the Bible with you. I mean, that's a huge starting point. You don't have to say, you better, hey, let's just read the Bible together. You tell me. So Paul began telling people, Jesus is the Messiah, and he, and he invited them to repent and follow him. Verse 6 says, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. So Paul always took the gospel to the Jews first. Romans 1.16, the gospel is for the Jew first. But most of the time, the Jewish people would reject it in mass. And Paul explains that in Romans 9-11. John 1 says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So he'd start with the Jews. He'd say, hey, I gave you a chance. You don't want it? I'll go to the Gentiles. So it says, he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, this would have been particularly angering to the Jews because the Gentiles he started with were Gentiles who were already attending the synagogue, right? Which meant that they were contributing to the to the well-being of the synagogue. And all of a sudden, Paul goes, all right, you Jews don't want the gospel? I'm going to start talking to the, to the Gentiles here. And, and, and look what happened. It says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, and he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. So, so imagine if there was a synagogue right here, and they go, get out, you loser. You're not from God. You're a false teacher. Paul goes, okay. Anybody who thinks what I'm saying is the truth, we're going to be meeting at that house next door on Saturday. So God was drawing people. And so they started coming to the house next door. Now look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Uh-oh. That can't be good for the, for the Jews in the synagogue. They're like, dang. He, he converted our leader. And it says, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, pay attention to this, because Paul's going to say in, in Corinthians, I, don't, I didn't baptize most of you. So they were being baptized by one another as they came to Christ. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Now, let's get, get the background. If you're reading through the book of Acts, every city Paul went to, people would get saved 
and other people would beat him up. And this was getting wearying, right? Hey, I'm going to go down into to Levittown and start witnessing down there. He had just reached his limit of pain and emotional suffering. And the Lord saw that. And, and, and he saw him unable to sleep. And he comes to him in the night. He goes, Paul, I'm going to give you a reprieve. Don't be afraid in this city. Just, just relax. Nobody's going to harm you here. And I bet Paul was like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. But notice why. Look what the Lord said. He said, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? What does that mean? I have many people in this city. What that means is God selects and elects and calls to himself people. And in his sovereign grace, he can do this where he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, if anybody said, God has many people to save in the Muslim world, most people would have gone, are you nuts? But suddenly there's this massive interest in the gospel in the Muslim world. And, and we, we should celebrate that and, and rejoice that people like Annie are going over there and take advantage of sending support as much as we can because God is at work. So it says, Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was with these people for 18 months. Now, he was not just like a, a Bible study. His goal was always to establish a local church. A local church is not a couple of folks having coffee and talking about Jesus. A local church is, a, is an assembly of, of people who have professed their faith and have gotten baptized, right? So Paul would lead them to Christ. They would get baptized, and then they would gather regularly, and he would establish leaders. They would have elders, and, and, and they would have the ordinances. They would break bread together. They would pray together. They would study the word. They would share a common experience of Christ. And then out of those local churches, they would seek to establish other churches. And they would raise up leaders and send out missionaries. Over the years, we've added all kinds of things like Sunday school and different things like that. Not right or wrong, but at the heart and soul, God's goal is not just to get souls saved. It's to establish Christ-centered, Christ-honored local churches, and you, you've heard me pleading about this. Those of you who are online, there's no such thing in the Bible as a solo Christian who goes, oh, I don't go to church. I, it's just me and Jesus. Unheard of and completely disobedient to the heart of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just save people to, to just do your thing until he comes back. He saves people to bring them into communities, and of course that's difficult. You know Why? Because there is no perfect church. And in fact, when you get to the church that you think is perfect, you just ruined it. There are no perfect churches. And so there are reasons today why people are like, I just watch, you know, Charles Stanley at home. But they're not good reasons. They're not biblical reasons. And so Paul established this church, and it was doing well. It wasn't one big assembly. They didn't rent out the Colosseum, right? Paul didn't, didn't stand up and preach to 40,000 people. They were little home churches. The people that had wealth would open up their homes. And it was crazy. Like, think about this. So in that home, that person who owned that home might become a believer. And then some of his own servants become believers. So during the week, those servants are waiting on you. 
But on the Lord's day, you gather in one of the rooms in the home, and now we're all level at the cross. And one of the problems that the Corinthians were, were having is they, they weren't making that connection. They, they, were, they were treating the slaves terribly, even though you're like, wait, that, that's your Christian brother. Well, yeah, but he's my slave. No, no, that's your Christian brother. You're no better than him. So, Paul leaves. He is under the impression the church is doing well. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1. And then he gets a message. Someone brings him a letter from the Corinthians. They had some concerns. That's good, right? Why didn't they text him? Why didn't they email him? Why didn't they call him? Snail mail was all they had. So, so, so the church started developing problems and they wrote a letter to Paul. But in addition to that, Paul happened to come across a family who, who was from Corinth. This woman's name was Chloe, and, and, and it appears that, or Chloe, however you pronounce C-H-L-O-E, and apparently she, she gave Paul an earful. She, Paul's like, how's it gone? What, what's gone? How's the church in Stephanus' house? How about the one in your house? How about, how about, what? What? And Chloe goes, oh, Paul, it's not good. Look at verse, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For I have been, in verse 11, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by close people, that there are many quarrels among you. Now, I can assure you that's not the only thing Chloe told him. Right? So all of a sudden he's like, wait, there's a bunch of infighting. Oh, Paul, beyond what you can imagine. Very divisive, angry. People are saying mean things about one another. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? Christians never do that. Christians would never have a different opinion and then be judgmental and cruel and unkind to someone who had a different view of politics or vaccines or we just don't do that. But back then these people didn't have the knowledge that we do. It's kind of like Wow. So, in addition, Paul had already found out that some of the people weren't putting two and two together. When I led you to Christ, God didn't save you to live in your sins. He forgave you so that you would turn from your sins and begin to grow in grace. And some of the people are like, I'm not doing that. And so, look in chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now you go, can I get a time out here, Tom? This is 1 Corinthians. How could he have a former letter? He did. He says so. He goes, I already wrote you a letter. So think about it this way. Everything that proceeded from the pen of Paul was not inspired scripture. Paul wrote lots of letters that we don't have. For example, in Colossians, he said, be sure you read my letter to the Laodiceans. Have you read it? <laughs> I don't even know where it is. So Paul had written them a letter, and I don't know if they could tell. Maybe, maybe the ones that were inspired, they were glowing. They're like, this one's going to be in the Bible. No, they didn't know. But he wrote them a letter, and he said, listen, if you're a Christian and you're hanging around other Christians who are immoral, 
Step away from them. Discipline them. Don't continue to let them persist in their immorality. They misunderstood him. They thought he said, don't ever be around immoral people. He goes, that's not what I said. I said, don't be around immoral people who continue to persist in their immorality, even though they call themselves Christians. We're going to come to that in chapter 5. But the point is, so we've got a number of things going on. He knows they've got problems. Some of them are being immoral. He knows that they're suing one another, right? Because they're swindlers. Yo, that guy promised me if I pay him a hundred bucks, he would do this and this, and he cheated me, and now he's not paying me back, and he goes to my church, and I'm going to sue him. And so Paul's going, oh my word. He goes, don't you remember what Jesus said? They're going to know you're Christians by your love. I mean, don't we all just kind of bug out when we see father suing child or grandchildren suing grandparents over the will? You're like, you just don't sue your loved ones, right? You figure it out. So Paul's going, you guys are going to court. You're squabbling and and divisive and quarreling. Many of you are still immoral. You're still going up and sleeping with prostitutes. Some of you are still practicing homosexual behavior. Some of you are still just repeatedly getting drunk and going, yeah, well, you know, praise the Lord. He made the wine. God made it. We enjoy it. And he's going, okay, what am I going to do with these people? Because he loved them. He wasn't like, these jerks. He loved them dearly. But this church needed repair. And if that wasn't enough, one of the problems they had in the first century was there were no places to go get a steak. You wouldn't go, you want to go to a, a good steakhouse? The place where you got meat was at the temple. That's where they cooked meat. And so every day in different temples, they would sacrifice meat to gods. And then it was just normal for everyone to go and eat at one of those temples. And even though it was sort of under the guise of religion, it wasn't like people all bowed down to their steak. A lot of people were just gone there to eat meat. But Paul told them, he goes, listen, because of its association with godless, pagan, demonic roots, don't do that anymore. And they basically said, you can't tell me what to do. I don't have to listen to you. And so they're now challenging his authority. They're now saying to Paul, you can't tell me what to do. And Paul goes, excuse me? I'm an apostle. Do you understand what an apostle is? And they're like, there's people in the church going, we're, we're super apostles. We're going to read about that. They call themselves super apostles. And Paul's like, wait, what? In fact, they said, you're a phony, Paul. And Paul's like, I'm a phony? I led you people to Christ, and now I have to prove my credentials? Are you kidding me? So there's a lot that was on Paul's heart and mind to try to help these people. Oh, and by the way, in the midst of all this, when Paul was with them, he taught them the necessity of love. Christians are to love one another. They're to love one another. They're to love one another. So all of a sudden, the Corinthians have in their, in their church a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, incestuous. And he had taught them what to do. Listen, when a person persists in their sin, you discipline them. They're doing the exact opposite. You know what they were doing? They were bragging about how loving they were. Listen, 
There's no church as loving as ours. We love everybody. In fact, we have a guy in our church who's committing incest. We even love him. And Paul goes, you have a guy committing incest? Even pagans don't do that. And you're boasting about it? You should be grieving about it. And so he has to write to them. And so a, a, a way to think of the big picture is something like this. The first six chapters of this book are things that, that are on Paul's heart. He goes, we have to deal with these divisions and we have to deal with these difficulties. The difficulties being incest, immorality, and indictments. But in addition to that, they had questions for Paul. Turn over to chapter 7. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So, if you're reading through the letter, Paul starts the first section, and he didn't have chapters, he's just writing, right? But the first section of the book is, these are, these are things that are on Paul's mind, trying to heal the division and disorder. But beginning in chapter 7, now these are the things that are on their mind. He goes, I'll answer your questions. You want to learn about marriage and sex and singleness and divorce? Make a note of that. You want to be here when we study chapter 7. Some of you are like, I'm going to be here that day, right? And then he says, I'll, I'll deal with your concerns about meat and idols and temple. So, so in chapter 8, he goes, now concerning meat and idols. And then in chapter 11, he goes, now concerning the Lord's table. They had a lot of questions about assembling. Like, what do we do when we get together? What about these head coverings? And, 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 and Paul's like, you guys are so messed up the way you do communion. You should stop it. It would be better for you to not even get together than what you're doing right now. God's actually had to, to take some of your lives because it's that hideous. And then he says, and now let's, let's talk about your questions about spiritual gifts. Because these people were uniquely gifted by God. Many of them spoke in tongues and prophesied. And that which was a good gift from God, they had completely twisted into this jealous, prideful, disorganized chaos in which there were the, the, the holy ones and the ones that just didn't cut it. And Paul goes, uh, let me just address this whole subject of spiritual gifts. So this will be fun because we're going to learn about spiritual gifts and and what they are, and how, how they're to work together, and the priority of love. When Paul said, I'll show you a more excellent way, he wasn't talking about marriage when he said, love is patient, love is kind, love isn't selfish. He was talking about church. And he says, it doesn't matter what your gifts are if you don't love each other. It's a waste of time. And then he finally says, and by the way, I need to straighten you guys out on the resurrection because some of you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, my word. That's not the gospel I preached to you. So this book will be filled with practical stuff. But this morning, we're just going to look at the introduction, verses 1 through 9. So one of the things I want you to pay attention when you, when you read Paul's letters is he'll often, in the introduction, hint at what he's going to talk about in the letter. Now, they had it so much smarter back then. Why do we, when we used to write letters on paper, put our name at the end? Do you ever get a multi-page note from someone back when it was a handwritten thing? You got to wait through. Who's this from anyway? So they would start their letters with their name. 
and then they would have a greeting, the Greek word kairain, greetings. And then even if they weren't Christians, they sometimes would have a word of thanksgiving and maybe I hope things are good. You know, much like postcard where we'll say, wish you were here, hope you're well. And we all know, no, you don't. You're in Hawaii. You don't wish I was there. So just don't say that. All right. So he writes this epistle. Now, remember, these people are like, he's just teeming with emotions. He's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians, when I write these letters, I got tears streaming down my face. I love you guys. So, but look how he handled them. Like, I think I would have been much more impatient. I think I would have been much more firm. Look at the enormous kindness that he shows them. So as we read these verses, I, I, wanted you, I want you to just note three things that he's going to emphasize. He's going to emphasize their privileged position. He's going to emphasize their serious occupation. And then he's going to emphasize their certain destination. It's really encouraging. He, I can't believe how encouraging he is to, to a group of Christians who, who, when we talk about, oh yeah, they think they've arrived. I'm like, these people haven't even gotten out of the gate, let alone arrived. But he's so confident in the work of God that he goes, as messed up as you are, even though you're not even close to arriving, you will. But by the way, not because of you, but because of God. Because everybody God calls, God keeps. As, as, as Benjamin has led us many times, he will hold us fast. So, so let's read this, and I hope that you'll be like wanting to go, I'm reading Corinthians. I'm going to read the whole letter. And here's a hint. You're allowed to do it more than once. No one will be upset. I want to encourage you to try to read it like watching a movie. Don't stop, right? Don't start in the middle. Just read it through. You won't understand everything. I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've read Corinthians. And I learn every time I read it. God will teach you and, 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 and you'll wake up in the night and a, and a verse from Corinthians will come out. If, you, if you're cut, uh, you'll bleed Corinthians. Let's, 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 let's get Corinthians into us to allow God to use it to transform us. But as somebody once said, the problem was not that there was the church in Corinth, there was too much Corinth in the church. And there's way too much Corinth in the church in America. But let's look at how God is rebuilding a healthy church. All right? We've got some great things here. We've got some things we really need to work on. So, and look at how he dealt with it. He's not going to get into their problems. He's just going to encourage them. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he, so he has to assert his authority. Now, they're not convinced of this yet, but he just tells you, listen, trust me, I have been called by God. Now, he's going to use that word called throughout this book. But then he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So, what I mean by a privileged position is he, he says, you are saints by calling. The problem with that translation is because of the way the Catholic Church uses the word saint, they keep that as a select group of extraordinarily holy people who do miracles. The Bible teaches that every single one of us is a saint. 
The word saint literally means set apart by God. So in the illustration, you remember mother had those sewing scissors? You might have had 10 pairs of scissors in your house, but mother set apart that one pair of scissors if, if she sewed. And she'd better not see you cutting poster paper with those set apart sewing scissors. There's billions of people on this planet, but if you are a Christian, you have been called by God to a very privileged position. He has set you apart from the rest of the world. He has set us apart individually and corporately. That is a privilege to be set apart by God. In addition, he says, you are part of the church of God. So, when you think of church, the first thing we need to understand is the church is not a building. So, right now, the church is in the building, okay? And in its broadest sense, there's only one universal church, the people of God of all time who are either still on earth or already in heaven. The Bible speaks of this multitude of just men's souls made perfect up there worshiping with the angels. But every believer on this planet from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, wherever they are, if you are a born-again Christian, you are part of the universal, true, authentic church. You are part of this privileged group of people who have been set apart by God. Now, mark this down. Not everybody who plants their butt in a seat is part of God's church, right? You don't become a monkey by going to the zoo. You don't become a Christian by going to church. So in every church, there will be people who are not part of God's church, they might be part of the church in name, but they're not part of God's church. And that's why Paul says, make your calling and election sure. Make sure you're not just a nominal believer. You want to know that you're a saved person. But not only is this privileged position to be part of this great company of God's redeemed, but it's, it's, it's also local. The church of God, which is at Corinth. And so I urge every one of you to be connected and involved in a local church. If you're watching us online, it doesn't have to be here. If you're visiting us, it doesn't have to be here. But don't let anybody tell you that that doesn't matter. It matters deeply to God. The Bible says, do not forsake assembling together. You don't take the summer off. You don't, you don't stop going to church. You don't just go to church when the kids don't have sports events. Your commitment to the local church is your commitment to Christ because He cares about the church. And it's not about whether I got a lot out of it. It's not just for what you get out of it. It's what you contribute as you're there and involved. And so we're in this privileged position of being set apart, called to be part of the church. But notice that Paul's going to go on. Verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. So part of our privileged position is the entirety of our experience as Christians is all a work of God's grace. From start to finish, it's nothing that we did. It's all a work of God's grace. By grace are you saved. By grace are you kept. By grace you'll be led home. It's all a work of grace. And he didn't give it just a little bit. We have been, been enriched. This is, a, this is a word about a superabundant outpouring of God's grace. Now in this case, Paul goes... Here's something positive I can say about you. You have been gifted with many spiritual gifts. He says, in everything you were rich in him, in all speech and all knowledge, 
even as the testimony in Christ was confirmed in you, so you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I have been gifted by the grace of God. We've been superabundantly lavished with this kindness and mercy and forgiveness. And, and I would actually say that this particular church has many gifted people who have the ability to understand and communicate Scripture, and that's a stewardship that we should, we should develop and use for God's glory. So you have a privileged position, but you have a serious occupation. If we're called to be holy people, then we're supposed to be different from unbelievers. And I want you to take to heart as we go through this book that God's going to take us to school in a lot of areas. He's going to go, as Paul said to these Corinthians, you're acting like unbelievers. So our serious calling is to live for Christ, to live differently from unbelievers. I'm not talking about externals, dress up in a suit and tie. I'm talking about our heart, our love, our humility, our, our gentleness, our patience, our sincerity, our integrity. These are the things that, that mark Christians, our prayerfulness are willing to forgive one another and embrace one another and pray for one another. We have a, 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 an extraordinary, serious, serious occupation. In fact, I totally agree with Tozer who said the reason there's not more Christians in America is because Christians in America. And so let's ask God as we read, read this book to, to make us this an extraordinary set-apart people who are living what God has called us to do. But it's so encouraging to remember that we have a certain, certain destination. Look what Paul says. God will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, you kidding me? Paul, do you, know, do you know what happens in my life during the week? Do you know the thoughts I have? Do you know the things I do? And he goes, if you're a Christian, God will confirm you to the end, blameless. He will keep you blameless. He might not be happy right now with the way you're living, and he's going to, by hook or by crook, change you, but he will keep you blameless. And when you stand before Jesus, it's not going to be like, did I do good? It's all going to be by his grace. And what an encouragement. He doesn't look at you as a filthy loser, and I don't know why I even chose you. He sees blamelessness. And then he goes, so would you mind start living the way I see you? And you're like, but Tom, I got so many issues. So do I. Get in line. Look at verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning and we get excited about this book and we say, Lord, rebuild our church. You are so faithful. Maybe the devil tells you, God's done with you. You're too far gone. Let that go. The Bible says, he that began a good work in you will perform it till the day of Christ. You can't go back and undo your past, but what are you going to do at this point? For some of you, you go, what do you mean this privileged position? The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Do you even care whether you're saved? And if you don't know whether you're saved, well, what are you going to do? You're just going to ignore that till it goes away? Or are you going to talk to people? Just because you have doubts doesn't mean you're not saved. But I can't think of anything more important than knowing that you're saved, can you? You're like, but what about my portfolio? Jesus says, what about it? What good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? 
And so let's, let's thank God and pray that you will be grounded in a certainty that God has called you. And that's an extraordinary privilege. And then you will take serious your calling to be a godly person plugged into the church. And then when the devil slaps you around and says, God's through with you, say, uh-uh, he's faithful. And one day I'm going to stand before Jesus blameless. And guess what? There's nothing the devil can do about it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Lord, help us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for gifting us. We have an extraordinary group of people here, gifted, generous, growing, excited. Father, may our church, not so we can brag, but so that we can give you glory, may you establish and strengthen more and more disciples here. And may there be great works of God, miracles in the lives of individuals and families. Call many more people to yourself, we pray. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week when you turn to 1 Corinthians, I better not hear those pages coming apart for the first time. <laughs> Have a great day.